Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is A.L. Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E, M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A-L Levy U-R-M Audio. And that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is an old buddy of mine. His name is Gus G. He's an iconic guitar player from Greece. You've heard of him either through his own band Firewind, through his solo stuff, or possibly because he was Ozzy Osbourne's guitar player for a while. He played with Arch Enemy, got to start with Dream Evil. I mean, this dude has done a lot of stuff and he's an incredible guitar player. I welcome you, Gus G. Skype delay is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's actually pretty funny because you know, we get like really good musicians and producers on these podcasts and we always do this and it's always off. Of course. And like these dudes that are actually good at music, it'll fuck with them a little bit because <laughs> they think they lost their timing or whatever it's it's pretty funny no it's it's you know we um a couple of months ago i tried uh i, I mean i'm i was thinking about this what you were just saying like i'm waiting for the time which hopefully it's not going to be in that far away future from now uh, where we're going to be able to just you know jam online on a live stream and it will be like in in sync or do you do you think that will never happen? I tried to do this. Um, we did this live stream with Alisa White Blows from Arch Enemy a few months ago, and we just couldn't. You know, we tried to jam through the through through a Skype call or something, and we're like, we cannot do a, an Instagram live stream like this. We cannot do it like that. So we ended up. I recorded like some acoustic parts. I sent it to her, and then she basically did the live stream with me on a on a on a iPod right next to her. <laughs> you know. And iPad, sorry, iPad, yeah, so. Dude, I think that one day technology will be there, but it's not close. Apparently there is actually a program. I can't remember the name of it, but apparently Blue Oyster Cult use it to jam with. I don't know how tight it is. I don't know if it's like the latency's like zero. But if I won't trust it. Uh, <laughs> if it's less than five milliseconds, you'd probably get away with it. It would probably benefit bands like mine because we all live in different countries, but hopefully it will be the real thing because maybe you meet in a real rehearsal room and then everybody's playing different things. I don't know, but I think it's going to get there at some point, though. So the reason that I'm skeptical is because 
internet connections are not uniform, you know? Yeah. Like, so I've got fast as fuck internet here. Um, it's a business internet and it's ethernet, but so it regularly is pushing like 900 up, but I mean, there's some days where it's 16 up or something and I can never predict how it's going to be. And this is like awesome internet. So most people that I talk to don't have awesome internet. And so it's so unpredictable. And I feel like even if the technology was good enough, people's variable internet speeds will fuck it up. You just ruined my dream now. <laughs> oh, fuck it up for now. <laughs> for now. I think at some point it'll get better. Okay. <laughs> Are you enjoying being stuck at home? For the moment, kind of. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Whereabouts are you, uh, Gus? Are you in? Are you in Greece? I'm in Greece. Yeah, I live in yeah. Thessaloniki, which is like it's in the mainland, like the second biggest city. Athens is the capital, obviously. So you know we're like the second biggest city. It's like a city with one million, one plus. I don't know, but um, so it's not like a re really very small city, but it's not huge either. So I've enjoyed this lockdown thing. I have to say, I I did. How much were you traveling before? Six months a year, I would say. I don't know, maybe a bit more. I don't know. It depends. I haven't really counted. But yeah, I was always going somewhere every month. There was always something. And then there were the tours. And when there wasn't like the month-long tours, it was like some stuff I would go to, like one-offs or business trips or, you know, all these things. So never at home for more than a period than three weeks. You know what I mean? I mean, as long as I've known you, you've had a million things going on <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Kind of, not really. I mean, Firewind, you know, the main thing, the band. And obviously, back in the day, Ozzy, that was like a very big commitment. That was a lot of time being away. And then guitar clinics? I didn't start doing a lot of clinics until later, actually. It was not, I was not into it in the beginning. I started getting more into it as we went along. So now I do. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, start, I started getting to it a lot more as I was growing older i guess for some reason i thought you were doing them back then i did i did no i did oh okay. just not a lot of them like i would do maybe three or four a year like you know i was not like a clinician touring kind of guy like a lot of musicians are would you say that the release of your black star signature amp is what sort of started that the clinics i think the yes the amp in combination with the guitars and, you know, just the signature products, when that stuff comes out, you got to go out there and promote it. I mean, you promote all the stuff when you're playing on stage, I guess. But then, you know, going into music schools or record shops, um, uh, sorry, uh, music shops. Yeah, that's a different, That you know, you're going for the right target group right there. So, yeah, I started doing more of that then. And I started enjoying it more and more as time went along. And um, But, yeah, always something, man. Always, there's always something. So, but anyways... The, going back to, to, to your questions, like, you know, obviously everything is canceled for this year. No tours, nothing. We, like, yeah. So like, we, we put out this record like two months ago and we were supposed to start in the, in the States on, a, on this big tour with Symphony X and Primal Fear. And it was going to be a really cool like prog power metal package. And then that's done. That's shot. And everything else around the globe that was going to come after that. So and. Of course, that's a bummer, but for some reason it was like, oh, fuck, I'm home now, but everybody else is home. 
<laughs> it's happening to everybody and it's kind of I don't know I don't know how you guys felt about that did you um start having a different approach different philosophy about your career about you know kind of like start appreciating other things more and kind of like reprioritizing thing okay that's an interesting topic because about a year and a half ago uh, myself and the dude that I run URM with we were thinking the economy's been too good for too long it's been like almost 10 years of a good economy and it's moving too fast right now. Like it's getting too good. There's no way that there's not going to be a black swan. Are you, are you familiar with the concept of a black swan? Uh, I think so. Yeah. It's basically an economic term for something you didn't expect coming and fucking everything up. Right. Right. Like it's the thing you can't like predict, a pandemic, right? Basically. <laughs> yes. Like exactly. So, but we started thinking, Dude, there's going to be a black swan. We don't know when. It could be in five years. It could be in one year. But there's going to be one. There has to be. It's just been too long. It had been like 10 years since swine flu, like 12 years since the American economy crashed. Like there's something coming. So we started preparing for it a year and a half ago and changing everything. And then when it happened, I feel like we were mentally ready. So it it didn't like make me reevaluate things because I was kind of expecting it, but getting a break from travel has been fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Holy yeah, shit! Yeah. What about you, John? Yeah. Did you um? Because you're 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 uh, with your band, you you tour a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. We actually came back from a European tour on March sixth, and then a week later, the close down happened. And three weeks after that, we were meant to be going to the states and. Um, I was actually in a way thankful that I didn't have to get on another plane. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that's like the, that's just the main thing. Like the, the actual touring part of it is, doesn't really bother me, but getting on the plane for like, you know, anywhere between 10 and 24 hours. It's um, like, we just came back from India straight into Europe. Yeah. So I, if anything, I was thankful. And obviously with doing riff hard and stuff like that, it gave me a chance to really focus on it rather than juggling time between being on tour, trying to write records and doing it. So I've been writing in the background, which is always a good thing. You know, you never got enough music and um, yeah, doing riff hard. So if anything, it was just a good time just to sort of spend some time at home and enjoy the time rather than just constantly being stressed about deadlines and you know other stuff. I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? That's the thing. Like the like, what you're like you're you're already like mentally like okay, I'm I'm going into this tour now. It starts like next week, but then I'm already thinking what's happening six months later. Yeah. What are we gonna be doing next year? And what then? And fuck, I started. I gotta start writing some new riffs. And like, I look at that. I'm like, I've been like this. I'm 40 this year, right? I'm, I'm gonna be 40 in September. I'm like, I've been. I've been like this since I was 21 years old, you know, and, you know, when you're in your 20s, this is like, this is the life, you know, this is great. It's like, give me more, more, more. And now, like, when you're pushing 40, you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I guess I saw you quite close to the, the start of that period then, because I actually saw you play in Milton Keynes with Firewind in 2006. I can't remember the tour it was. I was one of the crew guys. Yeah, that was like our first UK headline run or second, maybe, I think. Yeah. It was a headline show, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. 
and an extraordinary large drum kit. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, that um, that mental or that personality trait of always looking ahead. Uh, is that something that you had to try to do or is it just naturally how you think like six months, one year, what's next? What's next? Is that just how you're wired? It's just how I've learned to do it because of the nature of the, you know, the music industry. Like you would talk to, to, uh, to the, to your record label guy or your, um, booking agent and they would ask you, what are you doing September next year? Or I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that's just how the business works. So I grew, I grew up into this and um, eventually when you learn more about the business things and you start that seed is planted more in your head and you're not just thinking, Oh, I'm an artist. You're thinking how to tie all these other things next to, you know, around your album campaign then it becomes part of part of your uh, the way you know how you operate. You know, it's uh, you, you know what I'm saying. It's like I was not like born like with that in mind. You know, like oh, I have to look like you where, where adap- I'm going to be. You just adapted to the nature. Of the yeah, business. I, I never thought like where I'm going to be in five years from now. I don't even I don't even ask myself that question now. I mean, maybe now I am kind of, but I have to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you, you kind of learn about that, and and that's how you you operate. And I mean. Now it's a whole out, it's a it's a whole different world. Like even if you ask yourself that now, what does that mean now? <laughs> you know. Okay, so you you asked if this situation made us reevaluate things or change our priorities. So that that concept of making plans now feeling really weird uh, because you don't know what's going to happen. I kind of feel like it's always like that. But before this happened. We kind of had this false sense of security that it was easier to tell the future, um, but we never could. We never had control over anything. It's just now that's super clear to us, which I think is interesting. It's not like it's not like chaos didn't happen before COVID. It always happened. You're right. That's very true, and especially in the music industry. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, you never know if you're going to have a job tomorrow. You never know if you're going to have a gig again or when your next gig is unless you've lined stuff up for God knows how long and it's always like that and and because you've had a good year doesn't mean the next year is going to be as good. It's it's always been like that. You're right about that. Do you think in terms of plan B ever like this might not work out, so this is what I'm going to do instead like do you, do you think in terms of contingencies? I didn't used to do that. I remember like when I was 18, I was totally crazy. Like I came to America, I had this scholarship for, uh, to, uh, for Berkeley College of Music. I remember. Yeah, and I dropped out of that school like two weeks into the first semester and I was like, fuck it. You probably don't remember, but that's the first time we met. We were together there? Yeah, uh, and the only reason I know this was because you were friends with James Malone. yes. And I remember James. Yeah, you were on the same, like, I just remember James's black haired friend and that (laughs) the two of you guys had got like sixes or sevens. So Berkeley has a guitarist rating system, right? Like zero through seven. And I remember that you and James tested into Berkeley like at sixes, which is crazy. And I remember uh, I remember the two of you. I do. <laughs> I, I definitely remember this. And uh, the two of you were both there for a, a few weeks 
on the same floor as me and then you both disappeared. But I remained friends with James. So I just, I remembered James's black haired friend, which is you. I think we passed each other in the hall once. Wow. You're talking about probably the, um, that summer camp thing they had, the five week program. Probably. Because that's where I first met James. And then we went back. I think we went there together, but then we, I did not stay in the dorm rooms. I, I didn't. Uh, I, I had to rent an apartment somewhere around town. It's all a blur. Yeah, I just. I remember I, that. I, I just but know I remember that like it was the, back then. The sixes and sevens and that stuff. I don't even remember all that. Like, but anyways, I mean, to me, that was also like a great experience. Like, you know, getting to meet all these kids from around the world. You know, all these musicians going into these classes and stuff. But, but anyways, going back to the questions, like I didn't have any plan B then. I'm like, okay, I'm just dropping out. I'm gonna do a recording since I've, you know, I've rented this place for like this next three or four months, and I'm gonna get to do this thing, this demo, and then start sending it to labels and be a rock and roller. And <laughs> like, what 18 year old kid flies from Greece to Boston by himself to to do this shit? Now that I think about it, it's I was out of my mind. Would you advise that to an 18 year old no. if they? F- fuck yeah. no. <laughs> I was thinking about this yesterday that uh. If I had a kid and they wanted to take my exact path, I would discourage them <laughs> because it's so unlikely. And I, I know it's the same thing with you. It's so everything you've done is so unlikely to work yeah. out that it would be bad advice to give somebody. Absolutely. And I also tell this to kids when I do like uh, clinics and stuff and they're like, oh, how did you make it? And I said, oh, you don't want to know how I made it. <laughs> It was sure, you know, you, I, I was focused and blah, blah, blah. And I was this and I was talented and I was thinking this and that. But there was like no plan B if this thing did not work out. It was like I was just fucking wild out of my mind. Like, I'm going to do this, you know. But, yeah, I wouldn't suggest that to my kid or to any kid. And um, But, you know, as you grow older, you start thinking about these things. I've uh, I've asked myself that question about the plan B thing and... Um, it, it has become a more of a regular thing in my mind lately. That's why I started doing like side businesses. That's why I started, you know, doing solo records five years ago because, you know, even Firewind went through so much stuff, even though we established it to a certain level, we went through so much shit. So I was like, well, I need to have another, um, what do you call it? Like another outlet where I could just do music on, you know, parallel to Firewind and that would just be, I could just rely only on myself, on my own name. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it was out of necessity. That's how you usually come up with ideas like that when it's something comes out of necessity. And I started doing these solo records five years ago and then did one tour, then another tour. And then one thing leads to another, then you slowly start building something there. And yeah, just basically branching out and doing other things. Like when you've reached a certain point where you're like, okay, now, you know, this is a small brand or this is a, you know, this has some small value here, what we've, what I've created the last 20 years. Now I can kind of like maybe see if I can capitalize on that in other, with other layers or other things that can go parallel to this. Or, I mean, now I started doing, I'm getting into making guitar pedals and pickups and started a pickup brand this year. That's a great idea. I'm surprised that more well-known guitar players don't do that sort of thing. Actually, you know, the most valuable thing I did learn at Berkeley, because I dropped out too, 
but the most valuable thing was in a business class that I took, the very first thing that the instructor said, and this, this guy was like one of the actually legit instructors who actually had, he wasn't just like a failed musician. He was actually, <laughs> he actually had a real career. Uh, he said that uh, the secret to surviving the music industry is to have multiple revenue streams. And this was in like 1999 before shit crashed. So even back then he was saying that the idea of making it off of one band, it is so unrealistic. Wow. If a guy said that in 1999, I mean, what the fuck? Yes. He could read the future. <laughs> that was pre-Napster, wasn't it? 1999. It was right pre-Napster. Or maybe it was already happening, but we were just too young to really understand. Well, like what you were probably thinking, what the hell is he talking about? I just want to rock, you know. That's what you're thinking when you're like 19 <laughs> or 20. Yeah. <laughs> he was right though. I I did pay attention. I didn't want to believe it, I guess. Yeah, you don't want to hear that shit. Like you said, you don't want to no. hear that shit. But but I did listen to him and I'm really glad I listened to him. As like right after that is when I started trying to do a million different things, which is basically save my ass. So that is the most valuable thing I learned there. And I've just noticed everybody I know in music who's stuck around has a bunch of things going on always. Absolutely. Yeah. How many people do you know who only do one band? And Ozzy doesn't count. Okay. I was just going to say him, but I was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That does, well, even that him, does. he's in two bands. He's a, he has a solo career and Black Sabbath. True, true. <laughs> no, man, nobody. I can't think of anybody really. I mean, if we don't, if we're not talking like rock stars from the '60s, '70s, or '80s, <laughs> maybe in most '80s guys don't even count. They are, you know, very few of those guys made it with with that. That you know, they can still just do that. I think Blasco is probably the perfect example of like someone who does a million things and is still a musician. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely, yeah, a guy who was doing that also well before, like I, you know, guys like us were thinking about that. Yeah. Very smart guy, very bright guy. Like I remember just after I met him, because I didn't know what, you know, I, I, I didn't know what he was about. I just saw him as a bass player of Rob Zombie or later on Ozzy. And then when we met and then I saw he's like, oh, I'm, you know, I signed these kids. They're coming out now and they're called Black Veil Brides. <laughs> you know, that went on to become like one of the biggest bands. Uh, you know, like I saw he he had a talent for, you know, manage, you know, he could manage bands and kind of like well-educated all around kind of guy. Yeah. But I often kind of like I asked his opinion about a lot of things while we were on the road. That's a good person to ask opinions <laughs> from, yeah. I think. Yeah. He's a very deep thinker. For example, like, Blasco was the guy who uh, told me about, like, dude, like, you don't need a label. He was telling me this, like, back in 2011. Like, you don't need a label. Just put your stuff up on TuneCore.com. I'm like, what's that? You don't know that? I'm like, no. Just put your stuff up there, man. It's going to be everywhere on Apple and Spotify and all these things. And they'll distribute it for like, I don't know, 20 or 30 bucks a month or something, a year. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, you can make thousands of dollars with your, if you, if you own your back catalog or if you want to, you know, continue like building your catalog like that. 
what a great tip, you know? Who tells you that? Like, that was just me and him just casually drinking coffee in a hotel lobby and just telling him, dude, you should do that. Like, fuck the labels. Like, <laughs> So you didn't end up signing with your solo stuff? No, I did sign. I actually did keep some of my catalog for, you know, like I did what I followed his advice and that was a, a great advice. I, uh, I did keep some of my digital catalog on platforms like TuneCore up to this day. And then I went on, I tried to do my own label for a while. And especially in America, it was easier because it's just one big country, you know? So I just did like a P&D deal, production distribution. Uh, we put out the record that you mixed for us, Few Against Many. I didn't realize that was on your on your thing. That was, well, I had signed, well, back then, here's the thing. It was at the end of that whole thing when you could just do separate licenses. Nowadays, that doesn't exist. The label comes to you and goes, I want the whole thing worldwide. If not a 360 deal, at least worldwide rights, you know, because now it, that's how it is today. But like eight or nine years ago, like I could still, I think I still had the rights for, I think I had signed a deal with Century Media, which included Europe only. And I had Japan and America separate. So I would either license it to somebody in America. I decided to kind of like take that, take that step and be like, I'm going to invest in this a little bit on my own and try to release it on my own here. And we ended up selling a few thousand records. And I remember getting the first checks because then the checks come in monthly, you know, not like every six months. And I'm like, whoa, this is what record labels make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it must have been shocking. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah, it was. It was a, a lot more work actually to set the whole thing up, but it was very rewarding financially. Uh, just by selling a few thousand records, we were never like a mega seller band or anything. And then, you know, after that, of course, as the years went by, retail just became more and more brutal. And you were, in the end, it just, I, I just didn't bother anymore. And uh, I just recently signed a more old school, traditional type of license deal with, with a German label. And it just made sense because, um, you know, I don't have to deal with all that administration stuff and all that. And, uh, you know, the advances were good and the deal was, it allowed me certain, you know, a lot of areas where I had a lot of, a lot of freedom. But I guess, you know, like if you're around for 20 years and maybe, you know, it was, it was the kind of deal where I think, okay, I've earned it. I can sign this deal now. <laughs> the best deals are when you're at a point that you have some sort of clout, Definitely. right? There's, I think that it's impossible to get a good deal until you're established. Like there's no way, no, no beginning artists ever get a good deal. Absolutely. Ever. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. You have to sign that mediocre or even shitty deal in the beginning. You have to. There's no way around it. Like I, like, so this is something where the music business classes, I think gave bad advice because they would always say stuff like, don't sign for more than two records, like stuff like that. And then I, I'm thinking there's no way that Slipknot only signed for no. two records with Slipknot. I, cause I know what Roadrunner deals <laughs> were like, cause my band yeah. was on there. Their intro deals were seven records and they didn't negotiate down seven. So I guarantee, that's seven, a lot of albums. I guarantee you. <laughs> It's a lot. That's right. It's uh, a lot of albums, but you're signed to Roadrunner. So that's, and they know, or they knew that 
getting signed to Roadrunner was a complete game changer. I guess to a degree. If you're an unsigned band and you get on that, it changes everything immediately. So there's no way that they would negotiate that down. It just, and I guarantee you Nickelback did that. I guarantee you Slipknot did that. I guarantee you all those bands that did great signed shitty deals. I can imagine as well when those deals were happening, you know, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, they were still in the mindset that it was going to take at least four or five records to really sort of promote the artist. You know, two records doesn't really give the label a lot of time to really push something, you know, to where it could go. So I think that, I mean, I think seven's still a lot, but you know, I think it's going to take, it's going to take it's at least lot. five. I mean, our, we signed Century Media and it's four. Yeah. For us, the same. It was a four album deal. Yeah. And I get it. You know, I get it. If I was the label now and I would sign some young kid with his band, I mean, how do you know they're even going to sell one record? How are you yeah. even going to invest in, you know, into a marketing campaign or pay for videos or record uh, uh, studio time and like all these things that you need to, you know, recoup all these costs and market the band and break the band. And that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight with one record. And how do you even know they're going to sell anything to begin with? So I understand from there. You don't. No, you don't. Yeah. So, so I understood, I understand that the, the risks and the, and the chances that the, uh, you know, labels take uh, on, um, on newcomer bands. Uh, and for us, it was the same, man. Like I remember that first century media deal, we were at some point at minus $120,000. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, we will never recoup this. And guess what? We did like 10 years later, we did. I'm actually making money, not not like real money, just like even if it's just pocket money. Every six months, there's like statements coming in because the back catalog is always selling whenever you do something. But we managed to recoup all that. And uh, I remember my A&R guy was telling me, dude, I never thought you'd recoup that deal. <laughs> he told me that. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you realize how many artists they feel that way about, right? It's got to be the majority that they think we're never going to recoup this. Yeah. Well, actually, well, it's a different thing, right? I didn't know this when we signed, but when it comes to recouping costs, it actually only comes out of the percentage of the band. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whatever, 17% or 20% at best that you might have or yep. 21%. <laughs> yeah, so they're actually made a lot of money off you. <laughs> yeah, the the 80% still goes to the, to the label's pocket. Yeah, of course, when they say recoup, it's not like they lost... Like I, I understood all these things after I tried to, to do the label, to be the label guy as well. I'm like, okay, this is where like, that's what they mean. You know, that's where like you, they still keep the rest of the money. But, but I understand, you know, between like, they usually say they account like $1 for marketing per copy. So if they want to sell, like at least back in the day, it was like, if, if they're planning on selling 10,000 records, they have to sink in 10 grand on, on marketing. And then it's like, $1 per copy for the Harry Fox organization for your mechanicals. And then they give you like, if, if they give you like $2 per, per, per sold record at, at best. Uh, so, you know, there's like your $4, which is just pure costs right from the, from the bat, you know, and then it costs, I don't know, 70 cents to make a CD or I don't yeah. know how much it costs. And so like you start, I started like, calculating all these, all those things. I'm like, okay, so that's what it means. And, 
And then the what is the retail price? Like seven seventy or eight something? And I guess they make like two or three dollars a copy in the end. The labels plus their own costs, paying staff, yeah, rent, like all all that stuff. All right, so I'm not gonna pretend like there's no predatory deals out there. However, I feel like when people complain about the labels being greedy, they're just not taking into consideration just how much a label has to do to, to survive. Basically it's an extreme amount. Yeah. Because a lot of musicians, they don't, they don't know, like, unless you've done it, I don't know. There's a saying that says, I don't know how they say that in English, but you have to kind of like, um, in order to understand like a business, you need to work at every, po every post, you know, like at every position to know how a business works. So like, unless you've done it, you don't really understand. You really do not understand like what it, what it costs to, to keep, you know, how much is cost to keep your, your stock, your, your uh, catalog in, in shelves in a warehouse or to ship it or to, you know, all these things. And at some point, you know, a few months later, if it doesn't sell, you get returns and, like all these things, you know, you you need to see how much it costs, what it is really like to do that before you start like going towards the label guy. Oh, you fucked us over. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my first manager, we were talking about the perception of managers and labels being crooked. And he said that it's unfair because nobody ever talks about the bands being fucked up and the bands are just as fucked up as everybody else. Like bands will screw people over and they also make really bad financial decisions. It, like it gets painted in a way that it says the artists are like angels and then the business people are Satan. And that's the relationship right there. Artists can do no wrong labels do everything wrong. And at least from what I've seen being on the business end of things, I think artists are fucked up too. Yeah. And I agree with that. This was like, I think that whole perception is that whole idea is because yeah, of how the deals were constructed back in the sixties or I don't know, even seventies. I don't know who changed the game, but there must've been some people that changed the game. I think maybe Led Zeppelin were one of the first ones that really were their manager started doing things that were more in favor towards the artist. But up, up to that point, I think that was a general idea. Like, what do you need? Oh, I need a car and a house. Okay, yeah. I remember Ozzy telling me that. I'm like, what, what, what was it back then? He's like, like, we had no idea about royalties, where the money went. It was like, everybody just called, you phone up the label and be like, oh, I like this car, can you send it over? And then some guy would bring over this Rolls Royce or, oh, I saw this house, can I have it? And like, they would get houses and cars out of that, which is actually, instead of money, maybe that's that's better investment. You have real estate or something. <laughs> so. I didn't realize that that's how they got that stuff. You're teaching me something new right now. <laughs> that's what Ozzy told me. They would call up the label and be like, oh, um, I like that house and can can you buy that for me? And then they would buy it for them. And, and I said to him, okay, but what about like your day-to-day -day expenses? Like you got to go to the you know, grocery, grocery shopping or whatever. Yeah, like they would give us some like money. Like, I don't know, maybe they would put, I don't know, a thousand pounds in the account or whatever it was and just to have enough money. But I guess that's how it worked back then. Yeah, there was no figures or anything. So what I'm, what I'm wondering about that is, because man, People in that era got fucking rich 
right? Musicians got fucking <laughs> rich if they were successful. So my question is, how bad was that really if you were in a band that did well? They did way better than musicians do now. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. But do you reckon they did a lot better than what even now they, they have? You know, if they're willing to buy them a house, that means that there, a lot of money was coming in. So do you reckon they still got fucked? <laughs> I don't think they got to see any of the accounting. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. They probably didn't see like yes. breakdown statements, like, uh, you know, semi-annually, like, okay, this is minus the house, minus the cars. I don't think they ever saw that. I'm, I'm just guessing. I'm just telling you, but... I, I bet you're right. I think like they all kept it to themselves and okay, we bought like, we sold like 10 million records and uh, we spent uh, this and this for marketing. We bought four houses, one for the, for each guy, four cars and uh, and that's it. You know, put it that put that against uh, the royalty, whatever it is. And I mean, I don't know. That sounds bad to me. That sounds better. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wish my record label <laughs> bought me a couple of houses. That <laughs> <laughs> I am wondering, like, if that was better for musicians. The reason I'm wondering is because most musicians are not business-minded people. It's it's actually, I think, business-minded musicians are the exception overall. Like, we're all business-minded, but I think we're the exception. Um, I mean, you've met hundreds, if not thousands, of musicians, right? How many of them are actually good at business? I feel like probably a few handfuls, right? Not many. So how much was the labels uh, doing that, protecting them basically from themselves? Probably a lot. Yeah, yeah, a lot. A lot. It's definitely protecting them, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. Like, it makes me wonder how many of those dudes would have, if they had given them all the money. I mean, they still did a lot of drugs and, and they drank all the booze they could find. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't stop them, you know? <laughs> Would it have been worse though if they had access to? I think it would have been a lot worse, of definitely. Hmm. Yeah, but a lot more people would have died earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I'm, I'm sure of it. <laughs> so, can we talk about the first time that we actually met? Sure. Please remind me. <laughs> I feel that? left out. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure you've had a similar experience. Well, first time was sorry. First time was Berkeley. You said just. Walk, walking past each other. Yeah, I'm talking about that time in the parking lot in, in Atlanta when we confronted that dude. What? That driver. Okay, so let me jog your memory. That sounds shady. What, was, what happened there? <laughs> it was shady. Okay, so uh, one day, Steve Joe called me. Yes. Steve Joe's an uh, R guy at Century Media for people. That now he's a prosthetic. And he lives in Seattle. You know him? Yeah, Century Media. He signed us to Century Media and then left. <laughs> and so you know he's like the nicest yeah, yeah, guy Yeah, yeah, dude. Ever, yeah, he's like right? amazing. Like, yeah. I love that dude. Yeah. He's a sweetheart. Okay, so he's the kind of person who you could never imagine getting pissed. No, about nothing. Something. He's just like, all right. So one day he called me and he said, I'm landing in Atlanta in four hours. Uh, somebody... A driver screwed your band over. It's the same driver that screwed Firewind over. They're in a parking lot. We're going to go confront him. I'm going to get your money and Firewind's money back. Will you come back me up? <laughs> Whoa, what year What year was that? Do you remember? 2007. So 
you remember there was that driver who had that like RV who kept stealing money from bands. The Dutch, Dutch guy was his name. Dutch was that the guy? Maybe. I vaguely remember. He was nice. I mean, our, we didn't have a problem with him. Who was that guy? 2007 sounds like our first American tour. Dude, why don't I remember this? Maybe you blocked it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so he had done this thing where he would like take money from bands and then disappear or show up to pick them up super late or just things like that. It, he would take ridiculous deposits and then not fulfill services or one time he ran off with some band's money. Like they had all the money, you know, inside of the RV and they went and play the show and they came back and the RV was gone. Jesus. There was a scenario like that with my band and I forget what happened with yours, but Steve was determined to get the money back for both of us. And uh, so... I met him in a parking lot and you were there and we all confronted this driver. That's, that's all I remember. And, uh, I guess he had also screwed century media out of some money, but Steve wanted both my band and your band to get paid first. I remember that clearly. And we took him to an ATM machine. I don't remember that at all, man. Yeah, dude, we made him withdraw all his money that he had right there. And uh, Steve fucking threatened the guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to imagine this because firstly, I can't imagine. I can't imagine Steve leaving Iowa or wherever it was he lived because he, he worked from home, didn't he? For the most part and didn't really travel. So I'm trying to imagine him on a, he must have been fucking pissed to get on a plane to Atlanta. He was pissed <laughs> as fuck. And he, he brought his wife too and she was ready to kick the dude's ass. <laughs> Dude, I don't remember that at all. Why have I blocked this from my mind? I don't know. Why? Maybe you don't want to remember that RV. <laughs> I do remember that RV. I remember the first tour. I remember we almost got killed on that tour because the guy was driving and falling asleep on the wheel. I remember that. I don't remember the incident with the money, though. For some reason, I do not remember that. But, wow, that's where we met, huh? <laughs> that's where we met. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not the way I was planning on spending the afternoon, basically. Just a random phone call. And that's the first time I ever met Steve, too. Holy shit. Yeah, so my first impression of him was him traveling across the country to help solve a situation for a bunch of musicians, which was really cool. Absolutely. I don't know very many people who would do that. Yeah. He was, he's a good guy, Steve. He was, he's a good guy. I mean, he's, he, he did a lot of good things. He tried to help us out to, you know, to start things in America for us. He knew how much I wanted to, you know, break into that market and he's trying to be as nice and realistic. I would tell him insane shit. Like I want to go into this TV show and I want to go to, <laughs> <laughs> I had other like, you know, I was in my, I don't know, mid twenties. I was out of my mind. I was, I just thought shit should just happen and the, the label should just make it for us. But he was like very nice to me and uh, tried to explain things and, you know, he helped me set up my first, my first merch deal in the U.S. If everyone in the music industry was like Steve, the music industry would be an amazing place. Oh yeah. Yeah. I actually tried to get it drafted into our Century Media contracts that if he left, then we wouldn't be signed to Century Media anymore. <laughs> Yeah, just because he was such a he was such a cool guy, basically. He really cared. 
he was also, you know what, guys? He was also one of those guys who kind of predicted, like, like your, uh, like your teacher at, at Berkeley. He told me. I remember sitting with him. He came out to see me when I was with uh, Ozzy in Seattle, I think, or somewhere. He came out. We went to lunch, and we were discussing what what we can do to kind of, yeah, how can we benefit from me being here now, doing this big thing, and how can we find ways to cross promote and drive some of these people to checking out firewind for example and and anyways we were having these discussions and and he said to me look man he said i think all things considered i think the way this is going to go is in the next few years and you'll see that he said that's just my take on it but i think it's going to be like between you and your fans and everybody else will be left out like do i have 5,000 fans to support what I do? Do I have 10,000 fans? And I remember hearing that and I did not like that at all back then. I was like, what do you mean? I want to sell like half a million records. Like, you know, and, you know, I was obviously in a different world at that time, you know, playing these arenas and every night. And I'm like, we have to kind of take advantage of this somehow. And I remember him telling me like, it's going to come down to that. He's like, the music industry, the way you know it, the old business model is dying. It's going to be between you and your fans. No middleman. And at the end of the day, do you have 10,000 people, 3,000 people, 1,000 people? Do you have these people to support you that would support anything you would put out, any type of music, you know, your music, your art, your merch? Then you will be in a good place if you have that and if you can do that. And you got to be able to connect with your fans that way. I remember him giving me advice like that. Smart. And did you think that that there was going to be a possibility for a ton of crossover? I didn't know at the time, man. I was just, I just couldn't believe all this was happening. I was just trying for the best. I did. I didn't get the feeling right away that a ton of Aussie fans were going to be sold into Firewind. Just because that thing was just so different. And I feel like the crossover idea is also a lot more rare than people realize. And the the most common example, this is very different than your example, but the most common example that I see of where people think that a crossover is going to matter and it doesn't matter is like when a band, like a local band or a baby national band gets like some big vocalist to do like a guest appearance and they think it's going to make the difference and it just about never ever makes any difference whatsoever. Like nobody, nobody cares. I think, and it's because that person's audience are into that vocalist for whatever band he's in. Yeah. They're, they don't care about this other band that he, uh, that he did a guest on. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I found out the hard way and, and I realized that as much of a hard work it was for me, like proving myself that, you know, I can be on stage here next to to Ozzy and play these shows and these songs. It's as, you know, after you've done that and you come out of that, it's you have to work twice as hard to prove yourself that, OK, now I can kind of like do it on my own. I have to stand on my own two feet and do this without that world you know like you know it's kind of like part of your resume you've done that but then you actually have to go back into the world and do your thing and uh i mean there was a there was a little there was a minute there where i thought okay maybe this is going to 
be really great and we might see great results, but no, we didn't. Like you have to do the actual work yourself at the end of the day. Like the, the, the 20,000 people that go in, into an arena and buy an Aussie ticket, they go there because they want to see him. They don't care. They don't know who's in the band. They don't give a shit. Most of them. Some of them do, you know, a, a very small percentage. And, you know, some of those fans, they have found out about me and they liked what I did and they followed me after that. But very, very small percentage. Yeah. I'm sure it didn't hurt. I'm not saying it hurt. I'm just saying it did not. It didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't do that big miracle if some people were thinking like oh so now like you're gonna go and play and it's gonna be i think there are no miracles you know what i mean it's also like for instance i remember when my band got Ozfest, we thought that like i kind of had these weird ideas that it was going to matter more than it did then i realized not just for me but like from a lot of people's experience it's never one thing like that that makes a difference like it's just, like you said, it's just a part of your resume. And then over time, things add up. But every once in a while, someone will have a hit. A hit will happen. Something will go viral, like shit like that. But that, again, I think that that's very much the exception. And I think that the better path or the more realistic path is to look at it like a long-term thing. Just uh, you slowly build over time. You're right. And that's all I've known in my career. I mean, the fan base that we have with Flyerwind, however many people that is that follow us by now, we've we've earned these, you know, we've earned this like one fan at a time, one person at a time. But on each tour that we've done, you know, whether it was supporting whatever band it was or playing certain festivals or like it just doesn't happen just with one appearance, like you say, or one festival tour or because you did that one big thing like it's all part of the part of the bigger picture i guess that's what uh, all musicians should try to understand that's what i'm trying to tell people when they ask me like what's what's the advice what's like what do you think I'm like well well you just got to do what you do and then you go from gig to gig or whatever from tour to tour or from album to album whatever it is and it's an ongoing process just or and and like you said just because you had a hit maybe or a hit record 10 years ago, it doesn't mean that it's still a thing today. You know, that's that was 10 years ago. Like maybe the people that were listening to you then don't even listen to rock or metal anymore, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So they, like every year you have to think like in, in terms of, okay, I'm, I'm losing fans every day, every week, you know, like they're just, they, they're into something else. They don't care anymore. So, but you have to keep the existing fan base somehow and hopefully try to add more people on your journey. Just to jump back to obviously you being with the Ozzy Osbourne band, um, I think if it was like the other way around, so say you were doing your solo stuff on tour and people would find out about you from that, I think that that means there's more likelihood that they would go and check out Firewind because they like your playing and want to see what else you're involved with. So I think at that point it's a different situation, whereas the your solo career will inevitably always help Firewind. But I think obviously with it being Ozzy, it's just, it's, that he doesn't just have guitar fans. You know what I mean? It's like, it's beyond that. You mean, had I done solo records back then instead of firing records? Is that what you... No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that like... No, I think he's saying that the tie-in, that the the link between Firewind and your solo stuff is much stronger of a link. Like there's, Absolutely. There's more potential for Firewind to grow your solo career and then solo career to grow Firewind than say Firewind and Ozzy just because it's such massively different worlds. 
Absolutely. I mean, when I started doing the solo records, the, the people that I was uh, turning to it to, uh, prim primarily was my existing fans, which were Flyerwind fans. So that that's the first that that was the fan base that I had originally. You know, that's that's the people that I played for. And along the way, you know, like more people came in and, you know, more the guitar fans and yeah, the certain types of tours that I did into that. And that was definitely a more healthy, what do you say, like a uh, link between worlds, without a doubt, between those two bands. Yeah. All that said, did the Aussie thing change how you approach things like your playing or lifestyle or business it had to have some impact. Um, it did, yeah. I, uh, I don't, you know, I, it definitely made me a better musician. I've said that so many times because just it's it's a different world performing in a club, and it's different performing in an arena with a production with a proper crew, like you know, and just doing it on that bigger level. And it's just a great experience to have, and it helps you as a performer. You perform differently. I mean, especially in that kind of spotlight, you know, you have to develop this guitar hero persona, which I was not much into before I joined his band. I was like, what do you mean I have to do a guitar solo? I hate doing guitar solos on stage. Even in my solo shows, I don't do guitar solos on stage. Like, I mean... On a, like a solo solo. Yeah, like the, like the 80s style solo where I'm just standing on stage and doing that kind of... I, I always thought that was kind of cheesy, but... You know, but it's it definitely helps you to kind of like grow that, you know, persona and it, it develops your performance, your interaction with the audience, all these things. You're, um, you know, I, I, uh, I started paying more attention to stage wardrobe. <laughs> I didn't care much for it before. Like a lot of those things, man. It sounds a little bit too Hollywood in the beginning. Like, oh, fuck, we have to wear certain stuff and we have to get custom clothes and this and that. And, but you know, you, you learn. It makes sense. It does. Yeah. Like I, it, it taught me a lot of things that I didn't pay attention before. I was just so much into, Oh, I got to build my band and the band and the next record and this, like just so focused into that kind of little square world that, that I just couldn't see beyond that. And yeah, a whole new world came into play with Ozzy and uh, that did me a lot of good for sure. I'm asking this question because I've seen this happen to musicians. Uh, and I know from my own personal life too that the more success you have, in some ways, the harder it is to focus just because the thing that keeps you hungry, it's not life or death anymore necessarily. I mean, you can look at it that way, but it's not the same as when you're trying to build those first thousand fans and you don't have a career. So I guess what I'm wondering is, was it at all harder for you to focus and like keep on the straight and narrow path in that environment? Like, was it distracting at all? You mean if I got, yeah, if it makes you a little bit more comfortable at, after at some point, yeah. Yes. That definitely happens. You, well, you get used you, to it. You can you can get used to it. I, I, the thing is with me, I, I didn't take it for granted. I knew this was like a thing that has an expiration date. For some reason, I just had that feeling from the start. I was like, yeah. Man, that's a smart way to approach things, in my opinion. It is, but I'm not going to lie and say that at some point it didn't get a little bit into my head. You know, like, of course, I had my little rock star moment there. Yeah, I was like, okay. But you may have to make sure that you don't get too comfortable. Um, 
it's a big question what happens afterwards, not really when you're in that world. When you're in that world, I, for me, it was just so much fun, just enjoying every day. And wow, we get to do this again today. We get to play <laughs> this place and uh, we get to fly in a private plane and, and you know, I don't have to set up my gear anymore. And <laughs> so, so you think about that, but you don't take that for granted and you just enjoy the ride. But then the, the big question is like, what happens afterwards? Like, how do you continue after that? So you cannot let this thing get into your head too much. Like I came from the club scene like totally self-made. And, you know, I knew that after this, I'm going to go back into that. But we have to somehow take take advantage of, you know, this new fame, maybe this new opportunities that this gig might open for my band, for other things, other business opportunities. That was my approach. Yeah. So I made sure not to get too comfortable. You know, and like you say, that's a very interesting topic you bring up. Like how do you stay hungry? You know, you have to you have to stay hungry into this in the business. Because when you don't want it anymore, you're like, ah, I've done this, I've done this, then that's when you kind of like start fading away. You see that a lot. You need to want this. Not even not even at that huge level, man. Like you see that even at like the club level. I've had band members leaving the band, you know, because they're like, ah, we've done the same club club scene like for for years like i don't ah, whatever it means nothing to me like i'm standing here i'm sitting in a backstage area like fucking being on 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 my phone for like seven hours and then getting ready playing and like when i see that i'm like wow you know it can happen to you like i'm thinking totally like the the opposite way i'm like wow, we, we still have a chance like 20 years later to come back and do this this club circuit and still be able to do this and, and, and you know, get paid and, and play for these fans. And because, like you said, maybe nobody calls you anymore a couple of years down the line. So it's like a little bit of uh, seeing the glass half full or half empty. Um, and I can see why musicians get discouraged after a while. But then again, what do you expect, man? Like, you're going to be Black Sabbath? You're not going to be Black Sabbath. Sorry. <laughs> Black Sabbath is Black Sabbath. Yeah, you're not going to be Iron Maiden. Okay, yeah, once in a while there will be a band that will kind of like break the barrier and then like reach that next level. And But the, for the rest of us, we should just, I mean, I'm happy that if we get invited back to festivals, if we're getting back invited to to open for a bigger band or, you know, play our headline tour. And it's, you have to think of this as a privilege, not like as, ah, shit, you know. We're going to go back to Atlanta to, to the masquerade. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Blasco was one of the people who helped me understand that concept. Uh, I remember him telling me like 10 years ago that he felt like his entire career is a house of cards that could just collapse at any time. Yeah. And that he approaches everything like that. And I was thinking to myself, if he feels that way, I definitely need to feel that way at all times about anything, no matter how good it is, always have to feel that way, I think. Blasco's right about about all these things. And like I said, you know, when you're in that world of, you know, whatever, playing for a bigger artist, it's it's really easy to get comfortable sometimes. But you have to, to, to think that this is not about you. It's about the artist that you're working for. You're not the rock star. He is the rock star or whoever it is you're playing. You know, you're you're a sideman, you know. <laughs> Unless you own the business or you're a co-owner of the business, it's not about you. That said, what kind of stuff would you do guitar-wise to make sure that uh, 
that you were staying on top of it. The reason I'm asking is because obviously in that environment, you can't sit there eight hours a day and play guitar like you could when you were 15 or something. I imagine that you, the amount of time that you have is much more condensed with all the travel, the press, all the different shit that's going on. You probably had to be super focused about what you would actually choose to work on. Still, are we still talking about the Aussie years or? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about how you managed your time during the Aussie stuff so that your playing kept improving. Yeah, I have to say also with Aussie was a, a gig where it was not like, uh, it was like three shows a week or four shows a week because he never plays two shows in a oh, row. Okay. So there was a lot of um, free time in between. There was, there was a show day and then it was an off day at the same hotel. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> It was fantastic, yeah. And you just, uh, yeah, not many people can do that or can afford to do that. You can enjoy the city then. You can actually see something. It's amazing. Yeah, you can see the city. You can, um, uh, in in various places, you know, I met a lot of friends or, you know, uh, some business meetings, things so you can set up for the future or... Or you can have your guitar if you want in your hotel and play. Or if I if I was releasing something with Fire, for example, I could do press on the on the days off. And I, for me, that gig, I, I my approach was very much like an athlete. I have to be in top shape. I have to. I, I practice a lot. It was that kind of time for me where I sort of went back and reanalyzed my playing, dissected it, and uh, picked out what is this that I should do here and here, and what I, what I like more about this and that, but. And, you know, of course, playing the, the back catalog of his, it's just insane, amazing. And playing all those legendary riffs and solos and trying to add a little bit of your own thing into that and just trying to find good ways to do these things that where it's still close to the original, but but you put on a little bit of your own thing in there. So that was, that was the stuff that I was more worried about back then. I actually... I feel like me and you had a meeting about mixing that Firewind on one of those stops. Like or me and George came and picked you up at that hotel. Um, I think it was London. a Nam, Nam, Nam show maybe? No, that was the second meeting. Like first, I, me and George picked you up at the London Hotel in West Hollywood. And we went to dinner, I believe. I like that hotel. Though it doesn't really exist anymore. The London Hotel, which one is that? Yeah, that was the Gordon Ramsay Hotel. Oh, it's not there anymore? It changed ownership and uh, it kind of isn't good. That, okay, that's the one that's right across from the whiskey, right? <laughs> yes. That sounds like the perfect hotel. <laughs> oh, dude, it's, it's yeah, incredible. That, that was a great hotel, yeah. So specifically, what kind of stuff did you focus on playing-wise? Like, So you're saying that you reanalyzed your playing. How did it change? I don't know. <laughs> just Let, let's just say that you focus on certain types of techniques before that, like for instance, how to play fast. I don't know what kind of stuff did you start focusing on when you reanalyzed. Well, I saw what I tried. It was kind of like the first time that I visited. Okay, like revisited my, or maybe like analyzed what my qualities was where as a player. Because you, you don't think about that before. I was just thinking, I'm making new riffs for the next Firewind record. The solo is going to be, okay, this solo part, whatever. And I just know it when it comes time to record, it'll be good. But now you're like in the spotlight. You're like, everybody's thinking, oh, could you be that next guy? Or So that's, <laughs> and you just want to do good. But I, um, you know, I, I was 
going back and looking at okay, obviously with a past guitar players, you know, they're practicing a lot of the Randy stuff, the Zach Wild stuff, Jake Lee, how they did it, relearning those licks. I would just practice those things and so very situationally specific stuff. Yeah, yeah, mainly like practicing the the um, the set list and just making sure each I mean I was all, always kind of worried about that damn guitar solo when that that was the worst moment of the of the show for me like the guitar solo. Would you plan it out? I I had to, yeah. I had to have all these parts. I, it was just painful for me to do it every <laughs> night. <laughs> I understand. That's the reason we play in bands is so we can hide behind the singer and the drummer. <laughs> I mean, I like, look, I, it, it definitely gave me more confidence after that. When I went back to my band, like I would, when it was a time for the guitar solo, I would go and step in the middle and like, you know, it's good to have that confidence on stage when you play, you need to have that. But I was just not a fan of just standing there on my own, like on stage and just playing an unaccompanied solo. I would have liked that if it was more of an instrumental track. That's more fun for me, at least, instead of playing what? Like fast pentatonic licks? I don't know. <laughs> what kind of stuff do you work on now when you sit down to get better? I just go a lot of different kind of picking patterns. I recently got into economy picking. I was not, I was doing alternate for many, many years. And, um, I just started doing economy. Maybe I don't know if it's if it came out just because I started getting lazier. <laughs> I just wanted to have less movement. <laughs> but that also, it, you find out that you can play licks that you couldn't play before. So your lick vocabulary becomes, you know, broadens up and opens up, and you're like, oh, now I can do quintuplets, something I didn't thought of, think about before, and all of a sudden quintuplets like an odd measure like that becomes cool and fun and and then you start mixing it up with i don't know sex tuplets or and two note per string and three note per string and all these things and different you can start blending in all these types of you know licks and new things come out so i i work a lot on that on picking stuff and just try to get creative with that how many hours a day do you still do it oh not not, not as much as i would like to or not as much as i used to for sure you know, every time I pick up the guitar, it's not like a practice session, you know, like now it might be just jamming. And like a lot of these ideas will come to me if I'm just having a guitar on my lap and watching a movie and then it'll come out. Like, I don't even think about it. Like, do you still sit there with a metronome and practice like you did back in the day? <laughs> <laughs> That's my answer. <laughs> no, so I feel like there's a time period in your life as a musician where you should do that stuff because once you hit a certain age, you're probably not going to have the patience to sit there with a metronome and do all that shit. So you should take advantage of that when you're young. So I think like, especially teenage years, like if you're ever going to spend 12 hours a day with a metronome, you should do it between the ages of 13 when and When your 18. parents are paying the rent basically. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I know a few people who are in their late thirties and forties who still do it, but they're super, super rare weirdos kind of. I, I feel like most awesome guitar players I know did, they did like their five, six, seven years of playing super hard when they were young and then their career started and then they figured out 
it's not that they stopped getting better. They just started to make their practice much more focused on whatever it is they're working on at the time, rather than just getting better in general. It's like it's like they say, you, you write your first album like your whole life, and then once you get that first record deal, you all of a sudden have to make the second album in just a matter of months. But that first al- yeah. album, it's like your whole life leads up to that first album. So like you say, it's like you have to be prepared for that at an early age. So when things do kick off at some point, you kind of have to go in that mode and kind of keep up with it, be able to keep up with it. And I think you just develop as a player at the same time as you develop as a musician by writing the next songs, by the next recording sessions, by gaining more experience on stage, by all these things. The, all the, you know, it might not be the traditional practice session that you used to do when you were 15 in your, in your room, but you know, that has a lot to do with how you develop as a musician. And therefore, you develop as a player as well. It's actually why I think most local bands fucking suck is uh, the <laughs> the amount of time. Basically, it's the amount of experience. They don't play enough to get that good. That's all it is to it. Like, have you noticed, for instance, have you ever had an experience where you see a show and there's a local opener and the local opener is better than the touring bands? I've never seen that. I've seen it once. Once. Okay, once. But that, that was an exception. <laughs> I mean, we've had some pretty good local openers, I remember, but very rare. Like you say, that's very rare, like where you, you'll have a local band that are just kicking ass. It's just because they don't do it enough. If you compare them to the tour package, even the first out of five band on the tour package probably just played 30 days in a row or something. So they're going to be better than the band who played two nights that month. Yeah. I remember I almost got my ass kicked in Cleveland by... This local band, and there was this huge guy that came up to me and said, why do you talk shit about us, man? I'm like, I didn't say anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> there, was, there was this local... Just out of the blue? Well, here's the thing. Um, we were on this tour and we played in Cleveland and there was this local band at it and they were, they were pretty horrible. They were tuning up on stage without silent tuners. That's pretty oh, God. Bad. Yeah, you can imagine how that sounds. And they were not really in tune. And... Um, I th- and and I find out I find out later that Bob, our keyboard player, he went up to them and said something. He said something to them, like, "Hey guys, maybe next time you should tune your instruments." He said something stupid like that to one of the guys. Oh God! <laughs> and, but I don't know. I, I think that was just his sense of humor. I don't know, whatever. But then they thought we kind of look alike. Oh, those Greek guys, they have long black hair. They all look the same. So they thought, they thought it was me. So this guy came up to me, it was this huge guy. And then just confronted me as I was leaving the club. He's like, what the fuck are you talking shit about my band, man? I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't even know who you are. I was from the opening band. I'm like, <laughs> and there was, dude, there was a, actually, and there was a fan who was there in the bar and he saw this thing happening he attacked the guy. He, he actually saved me from getting my ass kicked. He just, <laughs> yeah. And you had no idea what the hell was even going on. Probably. I didn't, I don't even, I didn't even, I'm like, I'm like this, they, they, this is like totally wrong. They must have mixed up, mixed me up with some other guy. And then I find out that Bob says something to them. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like <laughs> I almost got hit for you. <laughs> you know how it is. Like you do these 
tours and like they all usually add a band that you know it's like a pay-to-play kind of thing which is sad but you know they, they do that because they local bands have a chance to 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 get some experience and they all open for some whatever some other bands and and they make them buy like 20 tickets whatever like that kind of shit and and it was that band and then the, it was like we work hard and we were late from work and like he was the guy was just giving me excuses like and I'm like, dude, I don't even know who you are. Like, I don't, <laughs> was there a local opening band? I didn't even see you. I was in the bus, so I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why am I getting shit for this now? <laughs> so just on a topic of local bands, obviously I can imagine that it doesn't happen often anymore for you guys, but did you go for a stage of actually watching any of them at your shows? Because I actually spent, yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent quite a lot of time watching them, even if it's just in sound check. Even like the main support band, like sometimes we go out with other bands. Like I don't have time because I, I also have to deal with so many things while on tour. Yep. Basically, like I never watched a band before, even, even if it's like a band that I really like or friends of ours or a band that I'm psyched to have on tour with us because I warm up an hour before the show and I just hear them play a little bit through, you know. <laughs> through the door or whatever, but uh, I never get to see shows like that, but or it's, uh, let alone like opening bands or local bands, because I'll be doing something at that point, maybe working on something or doing some press or maybe like there's some VIP lesson, you know, like all that shit that happens on tour. So yeah. I don't, I, I rarely get to see any other bands. Yeah. I always felt like if I was watching other bands, I was not getting work done. Like there's always something productive that could be happening instead <laughs> yeah. of I'm sitting there watching a band. You could be doing something else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The thing is though, it's a weird topic, man, because everybody starts as a local, I guess, and everybody, uh, you know, has to get noticed at some point in time. So I'm not, I like when I talk shit about, local bands i'm not trying to discourage anybody from going for it but i feel like it would be dishonest to pretend like sit there and watch them or something oh yeah of course yeah. i think that bands really have to go out of their way to stand out no there's nothing wrong nothing wrong with that man i mean it's like you have other things to do it's you know your job is not there to sit and watch the local bands and um i have seen people get offended by it <laughs> i guess yeah, that's I remember this one time, it wasn't even a show we were playing. Emil and I went to a local show in Atlanta to watch a friend of ours play. And there were other bands in the lineup, but we didn't watch any of them. But uh, I guess the other bands recognized that we were there. They were stoked to meet us, but then they realized that we didn't watch them. And, uh, and then the next day all over the internet, I was like, these guys are fucking assholes. They act like it's fucking Hollywood. They don't support anybody, blah, blah, blah. It's like, we had no idea who the fuck they even were or whatever. We were just there to see our friends. So I've, I've had scenarios where people do expect it out of you and it's super uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. It is what it is. <laughs> But you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this because I say this to, to, uh, to bands and to like, you never know who's watching also. You have to think about that. Like maybe, sure, you, I don't do it, but you never know who's watching. I mean, look at how Aussie's people found out about me. I mean, it was not from opening some show, but it was through YouTube. So like, 
you never know who's in the audience. It's actually quite interesting that, isn't it? Like, because Ozzy found out of you through YouTube and then Guthrie Govan got to play with Hans Zimmer through YouTube. And it's happened a lot. Like, the, there's a lot of people watching. You could just you just need someone to be, yeah, anyone could be watching. And it could be anyone. It could literally be anyone. So it doesn't matter, man. Like, it's uh, you never know who's in the audience uh, or... Maybe if nobody's uh, nobody's interested in the audience, you never know that one person might put up a video of on YouTube of that performance, that whatever you know, and then somebody else sees that, and or another great story like that is uh, Arnell from Journey. That's how he got discovered. Neil Sean was watching Journey covers on YouTube, and he saw that guy singing amazingly he's like where is he he was in i don't know where is he from indonesia somewhere i don't know i might be getting it wrong but so there's like your success story right there so you never know who's watching how did you get discovered by them would you say youtube what happened i don't know exactly it's still it's it's still it's still a mystery to me to this day they wouldn't tell me exactly i guess the cia found you yeah exactly (laughs) cia no somebody from the from the team like like i think they probably had made a list of guitar players and i somehow made the list and um i think it was some youtube link i don't know which one exactly they gave it to him and he was like oh that's the guy and i think ozzy usually goes he feels like that about guitar players like oh that's the guy and i'm like well there's a little bit of a problem he's in greece Okay, well, whatever. Let's get him over here and see what's going on. That's pretty sick. Just like that. I think so, yeah. Like, more or less. I think they probably... I'm guessing they tried out the local guys first, maybe. Or the guys from America, whoever it was. And then they reached out. And, yeah, that was it. That's interesting that you don't really know where it came from. Yeah, I don't know who exactly and who put that list together and who was on the list. And, you know, it's those things where you don't really, I didn't really ask. I didn't like when you're, when you get there, it's like, okay, well, somehow this happens and that's a miracle in itself. So I'm not going to ask all these questions. I don't, I don't care. So <laughs> do you know how Firewind got discovered? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, Firewind originally was a band put together around me. Well, actually we got our first, Deal in Atlanta. Guess a lot of stuff happens in Atlanta. Yes. Do you know who David Chastain is? I've heard the name. Yeah. Like 80s cult underground guitar hero, the band Chastain. And he was on Mike Varney's label and then he formed his own label called Leviathan Records. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like putting out like a lot of underground guitar records and stuff in the 90s when it wasn't cool to, to play guitar solos at all. But he still did that. And while I was at Berkeley, actually, and after I dropped out, I was making all these demos and I would send them to both Mike Varney and Chastain because that was the guitar labels at the time. Or that's what I knew was, you know, and um, I never heard back from Mike Varney, which is funny because he told me years later I met him and he said, I remember having your envelope laying around here in my garage because I was getting like hundreds a week literally and I wish I had opened up the envelope back then and listened to you (laughs) and the other guy was David Chastain who got back to me he would write me back these letters and then later on emails obviously and and give me like all these 
yeah, words of encouragement, like, hey, maybe you should try and put the singer into your wrist because it's really good and there's not much of a market and maybe you should try and do this or maybe try to put more guitar here and there. And like, I was very young when I was doing that. And eventually, like after going back and forth, like for three years, he offered me a record deal. It was it wasn't even for Firewind. It was just for me. Just the the whole agreement was that they were, he was gonna help me put a band together around my name, around me, and uh, just kind of like showcase that. And in the end, I kind of like sort of demanded, oh, "We have to name this Firewind. We have to." I don't know why, but I was like, and that's how Firewind was born, basically. It's interesting because I think a lot of guitar players would have rather had it be their own name than a band name in that scenario. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Did you consider yourself more of like a band guy than a soloist kind of guy? Yeah, I kind of wanted it to be that. Like I was hoping it would become that. And then I've kind of regretted it because I realized that a band doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, it doesn't work the democratic way, like five equal opinions or you can't have five guys deciding on the album cover and who's going to mix the record and how it's going to, you just, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And if it works, it'll be a one-off. It won't work forever. I think that those bands are the rarest thing ever. Yeah, I don't know anybody like that, honestly. Also, I feel like when they say it works that way, they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like, I've like I've read about bands saying that they operate that way in interviews, and then known them in real life, and known that it doesn't work that way. There's there's a dictator. They just don't want to say it publicly. Yeah, there's one guy, and usually it's, it might be one guy or two guys who run the show, and the rest kind of like have their mm-hmm. place and their job in the band, whatever it is, and they follow. And and that's how it works. If it's like that, it'll work for a few years if it goes somewhere. What do you think uh, is the most difficult thing about having a democratic process in a band? For me, it's always that different people have different goals. So it's hard to get on the same page. Even if they're like a good musician, they might not be thinking about the band as their priority. They might be thinking about themselves as the priority or... Maybe they don't actually want the band to go far. Like, for instance, I remember uh, this dude, I'm not going to name, who I started a project with, specifically didn't want us to get signed. And we had a falling out when I went for a record deal, and he wanted to stay local. And it's like, how? What the hell's wrong with you? Why start a band with somebody... If you just want to play, if you don't want to get signed, if you don't want to get your music out there. Yeah, it's very disappointing because the guy was uh, very talented. So we're making cool music. So it was like one of those scenarios where, yeah, this shit's good. This shit could get assigned, but then this dude doesn't want to do it. It's a weird scenario, but I think that I've seen less extreme versions of that in so many bands where it's just two conflicting goals, basically. Yeah. You know, everybody, you know, it's really hard to have four or five people on the same page for too long. And as we grow older, everybody has different wants, different needs, different things they want to do in life. They uh, maybe it's like that from the start. Maybe they have a different agenda. Maybe they want to be in a band because they want to promote something else through that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's one thing. Or maybe it could be where everybody is on the same page, but then like three years later, they're not. You know, some guys don't like touring as much. Maybe some guys don't want to be away from home. Maybe some guys don't 
feel that like that anymore, whatever. They're not feeling the music anymore. They want to do something else. So, so a million reasons why it could not work with four or five equal members, like a million reasons. So it's just better if it's not a democratic situation. I find also that in a lot of successful projects that aren't democratic, the ones that go far, it's uh, the people are cool with that. They'll trust their leader and let them run the show. And that tends to be the best scenario, I think, where everyone knows their role and they're cool with their role. That's the only way it can work, like the chemistry can work. When you have other people where, yeah, well, I don't want to deal with all the business stuff. I just want to play drums or bass or whatever, whoever it is in the band. And they just like to be told, okay, we're going to be doing this that at that time. Okay, cool, yeah. So you definitely need to have those kind of people in the band. Like you cannot have like, you know, four alpha males or four business kind of guys in there and everybody want to do their own thing. It's just not going to work under a band name. Okay. So you're the alpha male type, band leader type person who gets involved in business, but you've also, you know, not just Ozzy, Arch Enemy too, like you've been a side man a little bit, yeah. where... Yeah, to some degree where you're not the boss. Like, how do you, since it's like in your personality to be the boss, how do you mentally adjust to be able to not basically try to take the project over or be comfortable, I guess? Yeah, personally, I like to be given the job description beforehand. Like if I agree to do something, like I, I like to have the description before, like we need you to come here to play guitar, you know? <laughs> we need you to do this. We don't want any riffs from you. We just want solos or we want this and this and this. And we need you to be present for like this amount of time. Like I need a, some sort of job description. And then if it's cool, you know, if I'm into that. Um, okay, Aussie's different, you know, it doesn't count because that's an experience that's, it doesn't matter who you are. You just have to say yes to that. Yes. Yeah, if it's offered to you, you just do it. Like if uh, otherwise you're just an idiot, if you say no to that, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Like it just, just the opportunity to, I mean, I went into the audition thinking, well, it's probably not going to work out, but at least I'll have this cool story to tell my friends. And it's cool that it even yeah, happened. Just, just to be in a fucking rehearsal room with a guy I didn't even think I'm going to get the gig. But anyways, different story. But like the the, the mentality of going into a, um, a a gig like a as a sideman is to what is, you know, what is a job description basically? And then see if you can, you have to make decide if you can do that. If you are ready mentally to, to do that, to drop whatever else it is you're doing to go and do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. How, how did you decide that it was worth it? I guess Aussie aside. Well, those two side gigs that I've done, sideman gigs, they happen in a period of my life where I was ready for that next level thing to happen, you know? I mean, Arch Enemy happened when Firewind was still like a baby band. And it was just a great gig to do because I liked, I just happened to be a fan of the band. I knew a couple of the guys from when I lived in Sweden. Yeah, I loved the band and it was like a great tour. They asked me to go out there on that Ausfest uh, tour. And I thought it was a great opportunity and not only to go out there on tour with, you know, Sabbath and Maiden and all those things, but also to get 
I, I looked at it like, okay, this is going to be a great opportunity for me to to become a better professional. That's how I saw it, because I didn't think that gig would have a few, would be a future thing for me. I thought I always thought in my mind that Chris Hamlet would come back, and sure he did. Um, but I thought this was like my first experience of of a professional band with management, with crew. You know, everybody was getting like uh, a wage, you know, like that. That was like my first experience of the professional level. Um, and that inspired me to, to do a lot of things you know, similarly in Firewind after that. And that made me, there was like also that wake up call where, oh, this is how my band should become. Like we should have a crew and a management someday. Hopefully, you know, that's what I was thinking when I was 25 anyways. And do this and not panic when something bad happens and this is how we deal with things and it was just great to see Michael and, and his team like how the way they did things so that was in a good period of my life where I needed that experience of a next level band because at that point I just did what I like I had no guidance from anybody I, I just did whatever the hell I thought was okay to do I didn't know any better so I think it was a it was a it was like a school thing for me like a great learning experience because I mean how are you going to learn how to do this stuff unless somebody shows you exactly so I it was a it was great I'll always be grateful for that gig and um and then again with the Aussie thing it's just a thing where you just don't say no uh, I it was a bit tough for me because I was just so much I loved so much my band and what I was doing and we had a little bit of a momentum then right when I got the call to join Aussie we that was like we just had our most successful record and the band, like the signs were there, the band could go to that next level. And like the, the thought of putting it on the back burner for a couple of years, it was a little bit, you know, a little bit of a bummer. But then it was like this big new opportunity, you know, to make it in America. <laughs> <laughs> I have definitely seen people be weird about taking big opportunities for that reason. So I've seen it even on way smaller levels. I've talked about this before where I've helped dudes get into signed bands like like say when the signed band is somebody I know they lose their lead guitar player I know this kid from the scene who's way better than a local guitar player should be like like I I they say they wanted somebody this has happened a few times somebody who doesn't come from a big band like someone unknown but who's awesome so I've recommended people a few times and a few times I have, uh, I've noticed that those dudes didn't want to leave their local bands for this bigger situation, not because they didn't want to be in the bigger situation, but because they had worked so hard at their own band that they didn't just want to abandon it. Was their, their own band getting anywhere or it was just local? No. No, it's completely unreasonable and stupid. Fuck, stupid, man. But my my point <laughs> being that is uh, that I completely understand because I've seen it even on the local level, you know? So it makes sense that if Firewind is already gaining momentum, that it would make you think twice about it. Yeah. I remember I had a little bit of a panic attack at that point. After I got the gig, I was like, oh my God, how is this going to work out? What am I going to do? It's 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 It can go either way. Like, it could be great for me or it could be... A complete disaster. Like, what if everybody hates me? And what if we lose all our fan base overnight? You know, like all these things can happen. These are questions that you have to kind of like ask yourself. Like, but at the end of the day, it was the opportunity of a lifetime, and you just 
go for it. Fuck it. Yeah, this is a chance to see how it's done in the biggest possible level that you probably will never get to experience before. Because my background is not being a sideman. I'm not, like, after that Aussie gig, I'm not out there looking for the next gig, like, my next work. You know, I'm, I'm just going back to what I always did. So... I was not from that world and I had that opportunity. I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to, to do this. I'm going to live this and see what, what happens, see what this brings on, you know? How, what did you do to keep Firewind going? Like, how, how did you manage that? Because I'm sure that for the members, it was scary. It was scary, of course. They trusted me and I thanked them for that. It was scary. It was a lot of talking with the guys, keeping in touch always and... I did something that ultimately took a toll on my own personal health. I, uh, you know, on the few days off that I would have in between tours, I would fly back to Greece instead of probably maybe getting a place in America somewhere. I would fly all the way back to Greece, and I would go in and do gigs with with the band. Like we would, like small stuff. We would do a one-off in London, or we would do like a Japan tour, or we would do like because what happened was we had a a record done already at that time, at the same time, when I was doing the audition for Ozzy, we were finishing up a record and we delivered it to Century Media. And then at some point the label said, well, look, we can't wait like two years until this Ozzy tour is done. We're going to put out the record no matter what. And I did not like that, but I had to kind of like play along with it. And then I felt mm-hmm. the pressure. I, I, nobody really put any pressure on me. I have to say this to uh, as well. You know, I, I have to clarify this. Nobody really put, you know, the knife in my neck or something. <laughs> it was like, it was just me just going crazy over it. I'm like, well, if I'm going to release something, I have to support it. I have to do something. I just can't put out a record and not do any gig. So that's probably a really wise decision in retrospect, not to just release it and let it coast. Yeah. But you know, it was, it fucked me up. It was like, I, I was so tired in the end. Like by 2012, I had like a fucking, breakdown you know that's the price you pay you know that's the price yeah i guess yeah everything's got a price anyways you know i did it then and i i I know that i would never do that again if i will ever be in such a situation again i will never like you you can only uh, i i realized that after that you can only wear one hat at a time i actually kind of agree with that In, in terms of touring at least you know in terms of touring and traveling yeah there you can only have one main bitch basically (laughs) It's it's just too much time. It's too too much time required for a serious gig, I think. Yeah. So you guys must have had excellent communication. Well, there were a lot of fights too. <laughs> I mean, fights are communication. Uh yeah, I was not used to fights. I don't like to fight with anybody. So, but there was a lot of arguments too and there was a lot of Look, man, I understand. But uh, yeah, I think the good thing with Firewind was that it was a band based on friendship. It was built upon friendship. And um, in the end, that was that, that's like the friendship that kept the band going on all these years. What would they do while you were gone? What did they do? Yeah. Like, what kept them from being like, fuck this? I, th- I don't know, man. Like, I think they really believed in me. You know, everybody, they thought, like, well, let's see what happens with this. I think everybody was as curious as I was. They were proud and happy for me, of course, because, you know, we're from a small country, man, like Greece. Do you know know anybody else from Greece ever playing in one of the biggest metal bands in the world? Not like that, no. (laughs) A few bands from Greece, though. I don't even know anybody else from Greece. (laughs) Right, there you go. So, (laughs) so, I mean, it was like, 
it was an exciting time and a new thing for everybody. Everybody just wanted to see what the hell will happen with this and where will this lead? You know, what what is going to, you know, what is going to mean for all of us? And so, and they trusted me and, and uh, yeah. And like you said, there was a lot of talking and stuff and trying to look a little bit into the future. The thing is, you like when you're in the middle of a tour like that with Ozzy, you, you can't really plan because a lot of things can change in that camp as well. And that's another thing I learned the hard way, you know, like you can't, I mean, the other guys in the band, they had other things to do. You know, our bass player, he also owns uh, uh, a bar. So he had time to have a lot of drinks in the bar. (laughs) 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 We had just changed drummer there. And so we, we were just getting to know him as well. We went on tour a year later with him and yeah, it worked out fine. And he was very young then. He still is. He's the youngest member in the band, Johan. And and Bob, at the time, you know, he also and, and he also had like a his studio work, mixing a lot of stuff, recording a lot of stuff. And he recently actually left the band to go pursue that full time. You know, he, they had stuff to do to be occupied. It's it's not like they were just waiting on Gus to give him a call. That would have probably been a bad decision. Like that probably would have broken it up. I think if they had been just sitting around waiting. Yeah, it could have been the other way totally, and the band could have split up then. All right, so you're talking about Greece. I want to talk a little bit about you leaving Greece. So you know how we were saying at the beginning how we would never give people the advice to follow like the way we went about (laughs) things? But then again, if you hadn't left Greece, maybe nothing would have worked out. Absolutely, yeah. So like, what do you suggest for people who are in a, you know, Say they're in the Ukraine or someplace where there is no music industry. Do you think that they should just say fuck it and go? I think uh, at some point in life, you have to take risks no matter what. I think also at the same time, everybody will have a different path. So I'm not suggesting my path is the way to go. It's not the same. It's not going to work for everybody. But at some point, I will say this. If you want to achieve something, you will need to take a risk. Now, does that mean for your band that you need to all relocate somewhere more central in Europe or America or whatever and start, you know, buy a van and start doing tours and just build it up? Does that mean that um, you stay where you are, but you invest in a different way? At some point, you will need to invest in what you do, whether that is money and time, probably both. (laughs) If anything is going to happen at all. It will be good to have a plan B if things don't work out. I would also say the earlier, the better. With the plan B or take the risk earlier. Yeah, take the risk early. Uh, the earlier, the better. Yes, yeah, so at least you have a plan B and, you, and you're still I young agree. if it doesn't work out. You know, you, you can try this from your when you're 20 and then if by the time you're 30 or 32 and you're like, okay, fuck all happened. You know, like now I can go back to whatever I studied to become or have a side business at the same time maybe plant seeds for a side business or whatever it is. So, yeah, I think, yeah, but I think without any risk and any investment, nothing will will come out. Unless you're one of those people that, you know, you put something out crazy on the internet and it goes viral and it's all handed to you somehow. (laughs) I don't know. That's so rare, though. Almost never happens. Yeah, and even if that happens, it's like five, ten minutes of fame. The one-hit wonder of the... 
the 2010s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're saying with Firewind that you've built it up one fan at a time. Do you think that because you've done it one fan at a time like that, that your fan base is a lot stronger? Absolutely. Yeah. That's what kept this thing going for 20 years. The fact that we have fans all across the globe, you know, we can, I mean, back in the times where the, when there was a touring business, we could fly anywhere in the world and play anywhere. And some people will show up. There's fans everywhere. It's, it's a pretty insane, you know, like from South America to Australia to anywhere in the States or it's, it's pretty mind blowing. That to me is priceless. That like, that is an um, incredible value into all the hard work we put in. Um, and I've, uh, yeah, I've appreciated that more, that now in my life more than ever. You don't appreciate that when you're like in your 20s and you just want to rule the world, you know, you just want <laughs> But you appreciate it a lot more when you're getting older. You're like, fuck, you know, there's these people that, you know, they, they still support what we do. And it's, it's an amazing feeling. You know, you kind of grow old together with, your, with your, the people that follow you. It's a, it's very nice. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a big fan base or a small, you know what I mean? It's, as long as it's dedicated. Yeah. Here's the thing, like in another, like, and, and like, I'll give you the opposite. Like last year I did, have you heard of the Eurovision song contest? Yeah. That's like a, a huge thing here in Europe. So I got called to do like at the end, after everybody, con you know, all the contestants play their song, each country has a representative that hands out like their 12 points, you know, their I don't know why it's not 10, it's 12. But <laughs> uh, so Greece, they called me up. They wanted me to be the guy who hands out the 12 points on behalf of Greece. Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know you did that. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, it's like that's like a couple hundred million broadcast thing or something. I don't know how many millions are watching. And instead of usually, you know how it is, like they go and they say like, Oh, good evening, blah, blah, blah. It's such a nice weather. Congrats, bullshit, whatever. I just had my guitar there and I shredded. I just played. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just announced 12 points. I mean, you know, that got me like five minutes of fame in Greece the next day. You know, I was on the Tonight Show, whatever it is here. And like, like that was like, like locally or here, at least for the country, it was like big fame for like about a month. Like everybody recognized me, like everybody, every single, I mean, nobody remembers now. <laughs> you know, that didn't, that didn't sell me more records or, or gain me more fans. I think, you know, it's the real fans. They know they, they follow you, you know, they know who you are. They know what you've done. They, they have their favorite albums, their favorite songs. And, and they would have been your fans anyways, I think. I think, I think that that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that it's almost never one thing that makes the difference. Like getting to judge that competition or having one song that does okay or getting that one tour, that's almost never what matters. It's doing things like that for 20 years in a row, big and small, that makes a difference. Totally agree. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Which makes it a lot harder, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. What I always say this to 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 guitar players, like, and this is always like the, the eternal question: what, What's the word of advice to young players? Like, play music for the right reason. Like, what's the right reason? But you love music. There's no other way. Like, do you do this because 
sure, you want to be on that stage and play in front of thousands of fans, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, you create music, you do music, or that, that's, you, you cannot think of doing something else, you know? It has to be something with music. So you don't do it because the terms are better on this deal or worse, or the record deal sucks, or this tour isn't as good as you hoped, or, you know, like, you know what I mean? It's like you do it because that's what you're going to be doing anyways. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You probably couldn't see yourself doing anything else, could you? Right. No, I couldn't. No. So, so I know I'm playing music for the right reason. So it's not like I look back at the last 20 years and I've regretted something. Oh, fuck. How can I, how have I wasted 20 years of my life for this shit? <laughs> <laughs> you know, then, you know, you took the wrong decision in your life. So you have to play, you have to do this for the right reason. Whether that means that you, you know, you dedicate your life to being a servant of music because guitar is your life, mixing a record is your, that's your whole life. That's what you love doing. You know, whatever it is, it has to be the right reason because you're sure not doing it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Gus, uh, I don't want to take up all of your night. We've have some questions here from our listeners for you, though. And I'd like to ask you before we uh, before we call it. Daniel Benavides says, "Love the new Firewind album. Loads of sick licks and awesome riffs. How do you determine where to end the lick without overdoing it? You seem to place the vibrato at the perfect time to end your solo, and it gets me every time." Hmm. Just listen to a lot of Michael Schenker. Sick. <laughs> I don't know, man. I guess. Well, thanks for the compliment, uh, but. Um, I guess that all comes from your your influences and, you know, how do you develop? It goes back to how do you develop your own style? It, it kind of like become the, your own style comes out of your influences, right? Everything you listen to and you practice and you study and you like listening to, that kind of has a big impact on how you're going to play the guitar eventually. So, I mean, I drew originally a lot of my inspiration from the players that I liked and then from there on, you just improvise, I guess. You just improvise and you do a lot of takes and it's it's the experience, isn't it? Just recording, playing, recording, playing. Honestly, I don't feel like you need to try to develop your own style. If you play enough, it's going to come out. I guess so, yeah, yeah. It's just that a lot of our, I mean, most guitar players, us guitar players, we don't think about that, right? Like you don't... No. Like... So, I don't know. If somebody asks you how do you how do you describe your style? What's your style like? You don't know. It's like a, it's you. Yeah, you just you just play guitar. You don't know. Like what, what do you say? Oh, it's the way that I play that melody. I don't know. Usually, people will have to tell you that what it is that makes you you. It's for me. It's always I find it very hard to describe it. So I was going to say I think it's indescribable. Yeah, like how do you know where to put the perfect vibrato? I don't know. I think. You, you do it enough and you know how to end the phrase because that's how you hear it in your head or that's how it comes out from your brain, translates to your fingers. That's exactly it. I agree that it's your influences and I feel like it's your tastes too, right? If you have good taste, you're going to know where to put the vibrato. So maybe study the music that you love, listen to it a lot and understand it. But I, I think it's just going to come out. Yeah, it's interesting. Like he, like uh, Danielle, he mentioned the vibrato because I was always drawn to players that had great vibrato. Like I loved, like a lot of sim guitar players that had similar kind of take on the vibrato, which was you know Gary Moore or 
Michael Shanker or Ingve or John Norum or players like that. Um, so you listen to a lot of that, you try to emulate it, and then eventually sort of kind of becomes into the way you morphs its way onto your own playing. It's quite funny because I feel that vibrato is the uh, the real test on whether someone ruins the instrument or not. <laughs> Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I don't know why. Just I, I just that if the vibrato is bad, it usually just completely puts me off. Yeah, same here. That's like a very personal thing for each guitar player. I mean, we can all play the same licks, kind of the same. A lot of those licks that players you hear that you hear them similar, like. But the vibrato is something that's something very unique about each individual. I would agree, definitely. Okay, so. I have a question here, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong because it's a Finnish name. His name is Nico Kaliai Javi. <laughs> I did that really badly. Sorry, Nico. Is it often said that you should focus on your strengths? You've demonstrated quite a lot of them. So, do you have any weaknesses that from time to time keep bugging your mind yet nobody knows about? Of course. We all have weaknesses. So, there's a lot of things that I cannot play. And a lot of things that I don't know about. And um, I mean, it's true that we focus a lot of on our, on our strengths. Okay, you, I'm good at this, so I'm going to work on this because it feels more natural, so I'm going to keep at it. That's like a logical way to follow something, right? Um, but yeah, there's a lot of things that I, you know, I, I, I can't play or, or I haven't focused enough to, to try it out. And um, yeah. I'm not like, for example, I'm not one of those players that are kind of like multi, what do you call them? Like um, play a lot of styles. I I can't play jazz or I can't play Latin stuff or anything. I haven't really focused on that. I can fake a little bit of it, but, you know, I don't. Or certain other techniques. I don't finger tap with four fingers. I don't know. I don't, I don't do a lot of that shit or I don't slap on the guitar. So there's so, so many things that I don't do. So... <laughs> There's also only so like there's only one real Guthrie Govan that can play in so many styles, right? <laughs> Guthrie's like the only guy that I can think of probably that can do all these things. Convincingly, anyway. Convincingly. That's the thing, the other thing. It's like there's many guitar players that can play in multiple styles, but can they do it as well as Guthrie can? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't heard him play thrash metal that great. That yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. I want to see him down pick as well. <laughs> well, I think that the the point is that uh when you have these great players, you never really hear what they're not great at because they're smart about what they put out. Like there's always going to be something that they're bad at, but you're just not going to really hear it because they're not going to put it out. I think that that's one of the biggest differences. I'm sure there's something that Guthrie's not good at, but uh, he's smart enough to keep it hidden. Yeah. Maybe thrash metal or black metal. <laughs> Could be. Or maybe he releases next year a black metal project that kills anything that Cradle of Filth has ever done. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Yeah. I mean, would you be surprised? No. <laughs> yeah, nothing would surprise me. Well, Gus, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure catching up with you. It's been way too long. Way too long. And I have to say also, uh, before we close, I love the recent story that you shared about your father with the Ingve story. Oh, cool. Yeah. That, that was amazing. I had no clue. And... I know that record very well. I like that record that Ingve did. And um, wow, what a story. I, I can't believe it happened. 
It's yes. really, really nuts. And you had that moment as a kid there in, in that meeting as well. That was so cool to read that. Yeah, it uh, it was weird because um, it was so real, so young. Like, because, you know, you know how it is when you're 16 and you worship a guitar player and then suddenly he's in my dad's car <laughs> blasting his demo. The part I left out of the post was that he had alcohol and he was, my dad doesn't smoke or anything, but Ingve was smoking cigarettes and drinking in my dad's car. And my dad didn't say anything. And he was, <laughs> and I remember he finished a beer, rolled down the window and just fucking threw it. Uh, and we were, we were like on top of a bridge and it went off the bridge and you heard it crash. It was just like, holy shit, this dude's nuts. It, he's so wild. Like a bottle, bottle of beer? Yeah, a bottle of beer, like a Heineken. Just fucking chucked it. it he's so wild compared to my dad. <laughs> An authentic rock star right there in front of you. He was. Uh, it was the first one I had ever met. And uh, so the thing I'll say about him is uh, he is quite an extreme personality, but I don't think he's the dick that people say he is. I think he's just, he's about the most alpha person I've ever met in my life. That's pretty much what it is. When you're that much of an alpha, it's gonna, people are, are gonna have a hard time with it. Yeah. But imagine changing all of guitar when you're 18 years old, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. That was quite a big thing what he did. Absolutely. Yeah, there's basically guitar playing before Ingve and then after Ingve. Yes, correct. Yeah, he's one of those guys. So, and he knew it too. That's so. the thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the problem right there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just try to imagine what it was like in 1983, being 18 years old and doing that. Like, how would you not know it? I had an experience with Ingvi that it didn't end so great, but not surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then, then I, then again, you know, I understand all of these things what you said about him because I've followed him and, and I worship him as well when I was a kid and um, big influence on my playing, and I understand all these things, the whys and and why and everything, and why would people say stuff about him. And all this behavior and all that stuff. And at that time too, right? In the 80s. So, yeah, anyways. But um, I always have a great res the greatest respect for him, for what he did for the guitar. I'm not surprised that you had an unpleasant experience. I, I kind of consider the dude a force of nature in his personality. And uh, it definitely a lot of people have had less than pleasant yeah 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 and he didn't <laughs> yeah. he didn't do something to me either anyways it was like more of like uh you know it was we were supposed to jam and we didn't in the end it was you know it was that guitar guts thing he did and and anyways maybe i think i i also i don't know if it was me overreacting or whatever but anyways it was like one of those things where we were supposed to jam and it didn't happen <laughs> and uh you know i heard he got pissed off maybe maybe not i don't know you never know <laughs> I, I left the show early, so it's like not going to watch local bands or jam with England. <laughs> yes, put that on your list. <laughs> <laughs> well, dude, thank you for coming on. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. I uh, appreciate it. It was a pleasure to see you again, guys. Sure. Absolutely, man. Yeah, and stay safe. You too, guys. Yeah.
most of all these times, right? Yeah, exactly. Take it easy. And uh, till next time. Thank you. For sure, man. Have a good one. Thank you. Well, Gus is cool. I can't believe how long I've known him for. Yeah. Lovely chap, isn't he? Yeah. It's funny to me that he doesn't remember how we met. <laughs> well, because that was, uh, that was actually a pretty tense situation. It's weird that it's, he doesn't remember a situation like that. I mean, I could understand it if he was just like passing by, you know, offense to you, obviously, Al. But, you know, it's difficult as a musician to remember absolutely every single person you meet. No, I wouldn't take any offense to that because uh, I get it. But that was uh, that was like a very heightened situation where we all confronted a dude that was ripping multiple people off. <laughs> but it, it kind of says something about his personality in that uh, he focuses on positive things, which I think is a really good trait to have because it's actually, it's difficult to do. It, yeah, definitely. Like, uh, I don't know if you've seen the film Horton Here's a Who. I haven't even heard of it. Oh my God. You need to watch it. It's great. It's got Jim Carrey as the main character. And it's all about a, uh, a place that only promotes positive news. It's really interesting. Watch it. This is basically just what you spoke about. It's pretty good. <laughs> a place that only po promotes positive news. Sounds boring. No, no, no. Trust me. Watch it. It's, it's amazing. No, I mean, living in that place sounds boring. <laughs> That's what everyone on earth thinks too, AL. <laughs> I know. Actually, there's been studies about how when really positive stories get played on the news, like family saves some ducks or some <laughs> shit like that. As much as we love little animals or things like that, the ratings go down considerably compared to triple murder <laughs> took place. Do you know why it is? I think that people like to know that their life is better than what's happening. I think it's almost like a, an instinct yeah, also we're wired to uh, look for danger. So when we hear about crazy shit happening, that that sets off our uh, that sets our brain off a lot more than something positive. It's like if something positive happens, uh, there's there's no reason to get alarmed. There's no reason to really think about it. So basically, what you're saying is is that Gus is wired in reverse. <laughs> Uh, or he wired himself. I, yeah. I just think it's really cool that he's got such a positive attitude. And man, he's a killer guitar player too. Yeah, he's he's absolutely sick. I remember when I saw him in uh, in 2006, like I said earlier, I just thought, damn, dude can play. He's sick. It's no secret that I've known Blasco forever now. So I knew him when Gus joined the band and when he told me that Gus was the new guitar player, I was not surprised at all. Let me take that back. I was surprised only because it was like a dude from our metal scene and not like some LA guy. For some reason, I was expecting them to pick some LA guy, not like some shredder from our underground scene. But I was not surprised at all that it was him because he's fucking awesome and he looks really good. Like, perfect choice you know yeah he definitely fits into the whole aussie thing doesn't he yeah absolutely and uh i love his attitude about not being in it anymore it's very down to earth I th because like man i knew one guy who it's a really sad story but um he got to play with corn for a while and then head came back and uh he drank himself to death 
because it just nothing compared to playing with corn basically after that. But it seemed, but the way Gus looks at it is that was just like, that was just a blip in the overall story. Like one really cool chapter that happened out of many cool chapters. Again, I think that he's wired differently because obviously if any of us were in the situation where we played for Aussie, I think it'd be very, very hard to adjust back to what it was before. Um, I think that's just how humans are. So it's pretty amazing that he's managed to do that. Yeah, and it sounds like he's doing great now. Yeah, still selling records, still killing it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think the thing that he did that was smart, and uh, I've done this a lot. This is actually something that has saved my ass, is not looking at anything as permanent. Um, any Most things I've ever done, I've always thought there was an expiration date on them. And that has made it easy to transition. I think that he said that he saw that as a temporary gig. He didn't foresee that being like the last gig of his life or anything. It's just going to get the most out of this while I'm in it. And, but one day it's going to end. If you go into it knowing that, then, then I think you'll be all right. I think that that is a mindset that we should all have for sure. Especially in music. Oh yeah, definitely. And and Gus at the time was what, early thirties, just turned 30 when he was doing that gig. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a difficult time period as well. Cause it could be the beginning or the end of your career at the same time as well. You know what I mean? Well, that's the age where, um, people start to filter out of the music game. Like people from the band side of things that, you know, 30, I'm sure you know this, but there's like this milestone at 30 where, people who were totally cool to not make any money at all and just tour and do that whole thing. Suddenly they're like, Oh, I'm going to be 40 in 10 years. And, uh, <laughs> this, uh, this, it can't continue like this. So they, they generally will either quit, go back to school or something like that, or double down basically. And there's also the people in the middle that do double down, but stay with the band and maybe not tour as much. There is that as well that people do, I've noticed, which is smart in a way. I mean, spending nine nine months of the year on tour as a small band can take it out of you. Not to say you shouldn't do it though. It is, you know, it's the only way to really make money these days. Not these days. <laughs> Not these days now, no. I completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, a reminder. <laughs> Not these days for a while. One thing that... I thought was cool also that he was talking about was uh, the rhythmic groupings uh, because that's a, that can be a hard thing to, to start to understand like fitting five in the space of four, I guess you talk about feeling and not counting it for me. I, I feel like it's the same way, but sometimes I would have to count it, but more in terms of like one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, like that, break it down into like, tiny fragments. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there's certain different ways that you can approach the the note groupings within, well, I guess to a degree, it's almost like a polymeter. I mean, I prefer to feel it. Once you've got the feeling of what it feels like for that part, it makes it a lot simpler to know where to land in certain sections. But it also depends on how many notes per string, if you're string skipping and stuff like that. So I, I, I've just found that in 
the entire time that I've played the instrument, the feeling what, let's just take your example, five note groupings within a four note space feels like, as opposed to like what the four notes feel like, or maybe what the three notes feel like. Because I think that counting it when you get to fast speeds just isn't really possible. It's all about how it feels and how it lands. So that's one thing I go into a lot of the time in the downpicking gym on the Riffard site, just about feeling what it feels like to play weird note groupings. And there's one specific exercise actually is it's a little bit different than that, but it still requires the feeling. And it's a, it's a seven, eight section over four, four. And when you haven't played in seven, eight over four, four, it does feel weird. And it's all about how it feels to me. Counting to seven just doesn't really help you in any sort of way. It's just about where does that one reland and how does it feel? That's the only way you're really going to be able to play it, in my opinion. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. This just sounds like it's so easy to fuck that up. Yeah, especially if you're speaking it like that. You know what I mean? Because of the, even just the, yeah. the the number seven, just saying that it's two syllables. So it's already, you know, it's already screwing with the whole, the feeling of it. And it's just best just to feel it. I know what you mean because uh, there's been certain songs that I learned at some point in time and, I learned them by ear and I could play them because I had heard them a million times. Like I think uh, the quiet section deliverance by Opeth, for instance, I believe it's in seven. If I'm remembering correctly, this was a long time ago, but I didn't know it was in seven until I learned it. I had no problem learning it because I already knew what it felt like and sounded like. Another good example that people learn early on is master of puppets. And there's also a lot of yes, weirdism. That's a great one. Yeah, there's a lot of weirdisms in that song, actually. There's a lot of there's a couple of parts that I think are 15, 16. And I remember recording it for a cover on YouTube and I didn't really think about it because you know I was I was just so used to playing it. But when I started programming the drums for the song, I was like, oh <laughs> I had no idea. You know what I mean? So I think that feeling it and just the repetition of listening to something over and over is a really good way to learn because at the end of the day, that's what music is. It's about how it feels. It's not necessarily counting where everything's going. It's just like, does that feel good? Yeah. And can I understand that feeling now? Yes. And that's where that comes in for the note groupings, especially when it starts getting a little bit weird. I think it's great that that's covered in uh, in the downpicking gym because I think that it's something that's very hard for people to understand when they're first learning how to do odd groupings or odd time signatures. Yeah. And you see it in so many different styles of music, but you, I mean, Michael Jackson's another good example of it is that there's so many weird groupings, but you don't really think about it until someone says that's in that. And then it, you start messing with your brain and then you start trying to count it rather than feel it. I think we've all gone through that at some point. I definitely have. Same here. I guess that what people tend to think which is a misconception is that odd groupings and odd time signatures are just like a math metal prog thing when they're not, like you said, hear it in Michael Jackson, hear it in Metallica. It's all over the place. It's just with these super skilled songwriters, you just don't notice because the part feels great. Exactly. But yeah. Odd times, odd groupings are a part of all styles of music. It's not just, it's not just a dork thing. It's definitely not just a dork thing is at the end of the day, the reason that these people probably did it for the most part is because it felt cool. That's literally it. Absolutely. All right, man. It's been awesome as usual. We'll talk to you next week. As always. 
Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.